0: Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association.
1: And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us every Friday.
0: And this morning, we are joined by Gabrielle Jacoby with the longest title, but I'm going to use it all. (laughs) The child well-being policy Anad- analysis, Kids Count coordinator. You got it, yes. <laughs> Welcome. So, Gabrielle, tell us just a little bit about what you do first at OK Policy.
2: Yes, so I'm a policy analyst at the Oakland Policy Institute, like you just said. Um, and because I work on child well-being, that's so broad, which I really like because that means I get to work on, you know, healthcare issues that impact children, education that obviously impacts our kids, um, criminal justice, youth justice. So I get to have, you know, my hand in a little bit of a lot, um, which is a really. Really exciting, but also really important because there's so much that goes into child well-being. It's not just education. It's not, you know, it doesn't operate in any any of those silos. So um, yeah, just a little bit of everything. So every year
0: you well, I guess it's the Annie Casey Foundation releases the kids count profile for states. So what, what is that?
2: Yes. So the Annie E. Casey is a national program. Um, I always heard of them before I started this job because they're usually a funder on NPR. Yeah. So they, they'll usually throw that out at the end. Um, but yes, it's a national program. Each state has a Kids Count affiliate um, that works throughout the year on gathering data, um, writing, you know, blogs, reports, things like that. And then, but the big thing they do is this national data book where once a year, they take all the state's data and they rank it. And this, these are, you know, from nonpartisan government sources like census data. So it's not bias, it's not a survey, it really is just um, straight up data. And it compares where our children are faring on kind of four domains of child well being. So it breaks it up into economic well being, education, health, and family and community. Um, and because they do that each year um, for as long as beginning in can't remember the exact year but it started in the early 90s. Um, we can really st- see you know our state's history, impacts of legislation um, impacts of you know huge events like um, you know the the teacher walkout, the pandemic, things like that and how it impacts our kids in all kinds of ways.
1: Wow Have the trends changed over the years? Are we in the same pathway? are we making improvements or what are we doing?
2: So unfortunately, you know, a lot of what we're seeing in the data for Oklahoma isn't really new. We've been kind of firmly entrenched in the bottom 10 of states for a long time. Even when we have kind of improvements in individual rankings like child poverty or, you know, high school students not graduating on time, teen pregnancy rates, those kinds of things. When they we do see improvements because we were still so far behind other states to begin with, um, we still just lag other states, which I think shows we really just need to make, you know, thoughtful, meaningful investments um, that address all of these issues. Was there
0: any, you know, When this year came out, was there anything that you were
2: surprised that Oklahoma did Better in? Yes. So this year was actually kind of exciting because we did improve overall. Last year, our overall ranking was 42nd. This year mm-hmm. we're 40th. So we're almost out of the bottom 10, which is really exciting. Um, so I think there, there should be some momentum behind that. Um, when we break it up, because it does, um, you know, rank those four domains, economic well-being, we ranked 32nd. That's the only individual one we actually improved in. Um, we were 33rd last year, we're 32nd this year. And that was really largely driven by federal investments, um, you know, direct cash assistant, child tax credit, things like that, that um, really helped and supported families, stabilized them through all the craziness of COVID-19, the pandemic, you know, lost jobs, lost wages, all of that. So that was really, really critical. Um, But it, and I think shows, you know, when we invest directly in our people, good outcomes follow. Um, And so that's exciting and something we should kind of look forward. How do we keep that momentum going in the state?
1: Yeah, I'm looking at this in education. So one of the rankings is young children, three and four, and we have a red worse arrow.
2: Yeah, that got slightly worse. Um, and I think, you know, part of that really is child care is a huge issue in mm, Oklahoma right yeah. now. From 2016 to 2021, so in about a five-year span, I think it's about a 17% decrease in just the number of child care facilities mm-hmm. across the state. Mm. Um, and so if you don't have just a place to put your child, they're not going to be in school. Um because, you know, it's not an option. And we know even if there is a physical space, you know, close and accessible to a family, affordability is a huge issue Mm -hmm. as well. Um, with that ranking, though, that young children ages three and four not in school, I do have some qualms with it because if you just take our four-year-olds, our four-year-olds actually have the second best yeah. utilization um, yeah. of pre-K in the country. And that's something really to be proud of and celebrate. But when you lump in the, the three-year-olds with it as well, we start to go down, which just shows a need, you know, to invest in mm-hmm. child care um, you know, make sure our three-year-olds have every opportunity to take advantage of early learning um, and all that comes with it.
1: Yeah, I was noticing last year I saw some stories on child care deserts and mm-hmm. um, Head Start. Are they available for every community do we have them in every community? Do we need more in every community?
2: We could always use more. I'm not sure the exact, you know, statistics behind Head Start specifically, but I know Oklahoma as a state, 55% of us live in a childcare desert, meaning mm-hmm. there's not enough, you know, available options for the number of children or just there aren't any options at all. And when you're in rural Oklahoma, that mm-hmm. goes up to 68% of our rural Oklahomans are in a childcare desert. Which is hugely impactful, not just on children who need to, you know, go to school, yeah. but also families' ability to work, um, participate in the workforce, um, participate in their community. So, so that's a huge issue.
1: Yeah, it kind of hits on those other categories too, Ellen. Yeah, I, I'm looking at if you don't have childcare, economic well-being, um, family, and
2: community,
0: and health,
1: and so exactly yeah.
0: how. How do you hope people, do you bring people together to release the data once you get it, or how do you hope people use this information?
2: So, so that is a really great question. Um, so, once it comes out, I kind of spend the year just talking with folks across the state, promoting it, um, giving presentations when, when available. But then we also created this year a new data dashboard. It's an interactive map. You can find it at okpolicy.org slash kids dash count. And within that, um, you can pull up your county and you can find all of this data to see how your county compares in all, you know, so many aspects of child and family well being. See if it's doing better than the state or the U.S. Better or worse, you can really see what your community's strengths and needs are, and then advocate for those um, with your legislators, with your you know city officials um, to make to make improvements. Do you see any trends in like rural versus urban when you have a dashboard like that? Or it's interesting. I really thought there would be kind of more obvious differences, but. Um, you know, th- there are just kind of pros and cons to, to, to all of it. Um, you know, in our, in our metro areas, we see higher, higher crime rates. That's an example. But we also see, um, you know, better, better employment as well. So it, it's kind of interesting. Um, it, it's just kind of different in each community. There isn't really um, a broad, you know, brush you can paint about rural or urban, suburban and everything in between. So at OK Policy,
0: I guess, pe- I mean, do you consider it like a think tank? I mean, how would you describe the
1: work of OK Policy? Yes,
2: so we are a nonpartisan, non guys are
1: definitely thinkers.
2: Yeah. <laughs> 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 we like that. to think that. Um, but yeah, we're, we are a nonpartisan think tank. I believe we're the only nonpartisan think tank in the state, Um And so, and we have, but we also have our advocacy arm together, Oklahoma, that really tries to work on that grassroots um, advocacy, talking with folks all across the state, hosting events, um, you know, seeing what are the issues we need to focus on. We don't want it to be us telling people, you know, this is what's going on. We really want it to be informed by the people themselves.
0: And so do do you all do work? Like once you get this data, does that change the way you all think about what efforts you want
2: to work on each year? Oh, absolutely. Because you can see, you know, where there's progress, we can find, you know, momentum there to keep building upon that, um, where things have gotten worse, like with you brought up childcare, that's something we should really focus on. Um, and I think it sounds like with um, our legislature is taking an interest in that. So it's really great to hear. Um, but yeah, it absolutely informs what our needs are, what what progress we've made and how we can keep going. So I'm looking at
0: our health data and one of the things that I notice is that the children without health insurance is actually improving.
2: Yes, Um, so I really like talking about the health data and I think it's important to note that all of this predates Medicaid expansion in our state. So Medicaid expansion went into effect July of 2021, so a little over a year. Already, we've seen huge gains in children's coverage. It just hasn't been reflected in this data yet, and so I'm really, really excited to see how, you know, all of these health indicators improve because of ripple effects. You know, if if you know more parents gain coverage, we're going to have improved birth outcomes. We're going to have fewer low birth weight babies. So that's an indicator that will improve. Um, we'll obviously have less children without health insurance because we know parents are more likely to enroll their children when they go to enroll themselves in health care. Um, And then even other things like about health that we, you know, outside of health, I mean, that we don't even think of children in poverty will go down because parents won't be financially devastated if they have a sick, you know, if they get sick or injured and they don't have insurance to take care of that. So I'm really, really excited to see, you know, in future years how this data just keeps getting better. Um, And so that's something, something to be proud of in Oklahoma right now.
0: So when, so what is this data we're looking at if it doesn't reflect, expansion yet
2: so this is from 2020 um it's the latest census data because of the pandemic there were just you know lags in reporting um and getting to analyze all that data so it is kind of behind um what we usually would have but um but it but it is the most recent and and available census and american community survey data
0: so is that usually like a two-year lag or that is it usually like a one-year lag i'm trying to remember now i think
2: it i think it is like I think it is like a two-year lag, uh-huh. but it just, um, so usually this report comes out in June, but this year it became out in August because of some of that um, just lag in data reporting.
0: Well, that'll be interesting, I think, next year because of all the influx of federal money and Medicaid expansion. Like, numbers could technically go up again next year. Oh, optimistically absolutely. Optimistically reflecting those investments.
2: Yes, as, and I think it'll be especially interesting um, when the data catches up with the pandemic to see how our education outcomes um, what happens there? Because we know the past two years has been really, really hard for children to stay and learn in school with closures, all those disruptions. So I think it'll be interesting to see how how our children respond to all those hardships.
1: It is amazing to see looking at the, the data profile for Oklahoma, looking at economic well-being, education, health, family and community. There's so much data here. How can you take this data and help possibly legislature or how can we use this to make it be a data driven decision?
2: Yes. Well, I think data driven decisions are super important because, um, you know, Especially with with child well being, we're all we all really care about kids. Parents especially care about their kids, but we know there are um, you know vocal minorities, people who are very vocal about certain issues, but um, but they could be you know not the majority. Data will always show what the real picture is, um, you know what's really going on in the state, what's really going on with children and families, and so it, it's kind of hard to ignore. Um, I think it's really important that we pair, you know, just data and numbers with lived experience to see how people, you know, um, you know, how they're how they're being impacted by these numbers as well. But, um, yeah, I I think data driven decisions are, are super critical because it will affect, you know, what's actually going on in our state and the reality. Well,
0: thank you so much for joining us, Gabrielle. It was really great to kind of break this down.
2: Yeah. Thank you so
1: much for having me. Well, for this segment, it's just going to be me, Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Ellen um, had a scheduling conflict, but I have with me here today the stupendous, outstanding Tyler Outlaw, LPO specialist. Tyler, thanks for coming in today.
3: Thanks for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all about what's going on at the Capitol.
1: You bet. It's October, whether it's October or in the spring, there are things happening at the Capitol. And so, especially in October, the fall, typically, um, is when interim studies come. So, you know, uh, we were just kind of chatting before we came on and just not maybe everybody knows how interim studies work. But even more importantly, who are the people that come in to talk? So kind of give us the, the basic school schoolhouse rock how that happens.
3: Yeah, and I appreciate the perspective of not knowing exactly how it works. I'm pretty new to this job, so I'm learning on the go as we as we do go through these interim studies. So essentially, what happens with an interim study is a member um, decides on a topic that they think uh, legislators need to maybe know more about, and they have to submit that topic and pitch a interim study uh, essentially to leadership in the body that they want to have the interim study heard in. So either the Senate or the House, and they have to get approved by leadership in the House or the Senate, that being um, the speaker of the House and the House of Representatives or the uh, pro tem and the Senate. But also it has to be approved by uh, the chair of the mm-hmm. committee of that committee of that yeah. committee. And so once it gets approved, um, the member uh, who's leading the interim study has a lot of uh, freedom to mm. schedule speakers um, to educate the legislators uh, during the interim study. And that can be a really good thing. Mm -hmm. For example, last week when we were talking about community schools, um, we had a lot of perspectives uh, present at that interim study. So we got to hear from parents about community schools. We got to hear about community partners. We got to hear from the state department about how their vision, kind of their vision for Mm -hmm. community schools. So if you have a legislator that really wants to get into the nuts and bolts of a situation, you can get lots of great speakers. But sometimes um, that freedom leads to uh, speakers that maybe aren't as um, well credentialed or mm-hmm. have beliefs that maybe aren't as uh, well accepted by the population at whole. So would it
1: be fair to say this is kind of an opportunity to have a subject matter, to have a platform, and to get to present on that subject matter that legislator's view or interest or wanting to pursue further legislation on it. Is that fair to say about that?
3: Absolutely. I think um, the vast majority of the time, these interim studies are about topics that really legislators... Um, across the board want to know more about and maybe want to act on uh, in the upcoming session. And that's largely a good thing. Yeah. But sometimes you have legislators who have an agenda Yeah. and that agenda may not um, play well in Oklahoma, but mm-hmm. it might be something that plays well nationally and they want to kind of bring attention to that within the state. And I think, um, again, the interim studies that I've been to for the, for the last couple of weeks have largely been very educational not just for legislators but also for people like me who yeah. um are kind of new to this job and are learning a lot about how this process works so i think they're largely positive but it, it's not always the case yeah
1: i know there's been time where i see a subject matter that's on an interim set. i'm like oh yeah we're gonna and you get in there and you're like no this is not what uh, i was hoping it would be about so this week there were three if i'm gonna off the top of my head there was one on four day school weeks on something around um, with the Oklahoma Secondary Sports Association OSSAA uh, transfers, and then one on sex education. So let's let's dig into those. Let's which 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 one are we going to take first.
3: I think the the most interesting thing to me, and something that I think has been in the news a lot for the last handful of years, if not longer, was the four day school week
1: yeah. interim
3: yeah. study done by uh, Representative Danny Sterling, and. This was one that I felt was very well done. Um, They did it over the entire day. You got to hear from a lot of perspectives. Um, It started with having Carolyn Thompson from the State Department present on rules that were promulgated by the State Department for Senate Bill 441. Which mm-hmm. was the, uh, as I understand it, the legislation that was passed. I think two years ago. Yeah, it's
1: been. It feels like a bazillion years ago with the pandemic.
3: Yeah, yeah. and that was legislation passed to kind of um, deal with the explosion of four-day school week uh, mm-hmm. districts that we saw, right. and kind of uh, what that legislation's timeline looked like. I know there was some complications with. Um, the rules getting to legislators during the COVID year. And mm-hmm. so everything had closed down for five weeks and it it, it it looked like some legislators hadn't seen the rules and were upset that um, as I understand it, we don't have very many uh, four day school week districts anymore because those rules were so stringent. Yeah. Cause
1: so, I, if I remember the statute, it was, you had to go, cause we, you know, we have the already in statute, the district gets to choose, whether you go a certain amount of days or a certain amount of hours. So the district chooses that. Correct. They typically go with the hours because yep. it gives more flexibility of snow and who knows, maybe a pandemic. That helps. Um, but the they were they kind of gave guardrails because there was kind of was kind of loosey-goosey out there. Yeah. So it was you had to go at least 165 days. You still had to go the 1080 hours. Yep. 165 days. And also in our in our in our ESA plan, the LM, our every student succeeds Act plan that Oklahoma submitted, if you were a D or an F, you could not be on a, a four day school week. So cool. that that was already done way long before that statute. Correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what was the gist of this study?
3: Essentially, the gist of that part was that um districts felt like there was a waiver process mm-hmm. that was put into this and just a few months ago there were seven schools who mm-hmm. went in front of the state board and argued, hey we're not a DRF school we're meeting all the criteria that you said uh, we want to go under that 165 day threshold and the state board uh, denied mm-hmm. those waivers and there was some um, there was some, People that are upset yeah. about the state having these rules, people the districts following these rules, and then um, it being denied anyways. Right. And then later on, we heard from uh, a few people who were just presenting data. And I'm a data guy; like I, I love, love looking into the numbers and seeing I you love know a good spreadsheet. Absolutely, I think yeah. it it really is something that teachers, we're always examining, like, how are we doing with these students? So I think teachers like numbers. And so the next person they heard from was a woman named Christina Monaco, and she's from the Colorado State Department of Education. Mm. And she presented data, and this was eye-opening to me, about how many schools, they have a lot of schools in Colorado, especially rural Colorado, that are utilizing this four-day school week. And she presented some pretty good data saying, one, and this was backed up by the other researcher that we heard from afterwards, uh communities love this yeah. the communities that have these 4 day school weeks parents and um business they love this 4 day school week and that was i heard that numerous times mm-hmm. Other things that they heard that I heard from this woman was uh, she presented a study in 2011, which she said this is an older study, but they looked at the difference between achievement between students who went to this four-day school week districts and students who went to the five-day school week districts, and the study said that there was largely no difference in mm. their their learning um, over the course of of, of the school year.
1: Uh, interesting.
3: Yeah. And the, finally, um, so
1: was, was representative Sterling, was he wanting to say with his interim study, was he wanting, cause I always feel like there's a, there's an outcome they want with sure. this, right? Was he wanting to say, we need to be providing more exemptions to the law? Maybe the law is too restrictive on the 165 days. What do you, what do you think his intent was?
3: I think he, his his intent was pretty explicitly stated at the beginning. He wanted to present data that shows that four-day school weeks can work for certain districts mm. who want it. Yeah. He started off by saying, listen, I represent some very rural schools. He also uh, represents Norman North High School, like it's in his district. So he's got this... Wide range yeah. of kind of rural and urban, and he started out saying, you know, this isn't going to work for Norman North, and and we know that we know that it's not going to work for everyone, but there are some schools in my district and and statewide that um, this four day school week week works, and we want to, that to remain an option, and pushing it back to the local uh, school board to be able to make that decision with, like you mentioned earlier, some guardrails to ensure student mm-hmm. success. Okay. And so the last speaker that spoke was also, it was a representative, Eddie Dempsey, who was a school board member in Southeast mm-hmm. Oklahoma. And his school district um, adopted a four-day school week. And he said similar things, that uh, it saved his district money. He said in diesel costs for school buses alone, it saved him $250,000. It helped with recruiting staff. That was another thing yeah. that was present Throughout mm-hmm. um, getting teachers that either have a four day work week contract or have a five day contract, but that fifth day is not with students. It's right. it's grading. Yeah. It's professional development. It's time to have those meetings that you have at seven o'clock in the morning uh, throughout the week. Right. Uh, so it helped the recruiting staff. And he said that absences and students. Absences for students and teachers alike wow. went down because yeah. of this four-day week. So yeah. it was it was a great yeah.
1: Well, it'd be interesting to watch the legislative session to see if anything comes out of that.
3: I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if we yeah. see something uh, come out of this one. Yeah.
1: So then, well, let's, what are you going to ta- what are we going to tackle next?
3: I, I think the the next one that I'd love to talk about is Rule Eight uh, in the OSSAA um, manual. And they had an interim study. They have a manual? They have a manual. It's it's Rule 8. Rule 8 is very controversial, according to a few speakers at this interim study. And I'll be honest with you, when I went in, I did a little research before. I have to know what Rule 8 is before I start taking notes on this. And Rule 8 essentially says that it's about transfers, Mm -hmm. and it's about eligibility for sports specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Rule 8 says that if you transfer schools after your freshman year, so in your freshman year, you establish residency okay. at that district. Okay. And then because of the open transfer law. Yeah, that you district can go can be, anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But once you establish residency your freshman year, if you transfer again, you are ineligible for varsity sports only okay. for one year.
1: For one year. One calendar year.
3: That's, that's how they made it. Is it, it, it a, yep.
1: like, oh, here's a tricky question. What if I transfer in January? Right. So is it until the next
3: January? My, my my interpretation of what they were saying was if you like had a bad football season and you transferred, say, in November, ah. you can't play varsity football for that new school the following year. Gotcha. So
1: so it's like, ooh, yes. that's a full calendar year.
3: And I think it's important to provide a little bit of context on this one. Um, we have this open transfer book. Right. And so that's making it confusing for parents mm-hmm. because parents are saying, okay, the school, the state says I can move my student to any uh, school that's best for my student academically. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I can't do that for my student in terms of what's best for him or her athletically. Right. And so I think that's causing some confusion. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that kind of provides context for the situation is coaches and school districts are worried about, Great coaches recruiting all of the good players to to certain schools, maybe within an urban district or uh, rural districts picking from the districts around them to create these, like, this sounds ridiculous to talk about on an education uh, podcast, but super teams. Yeah. Uh, No, it's real. And it It, is real. real. It's
1: even before, even before the open transfer, even before, like, okay, I'm old. Let's (laughs) just put it out there on the plate. And I graduated high school over 40 years ago I don't feel like it but I did <laughs> and and that was a big issue I played sports that was a big issue when I was playing sports that if you if you change schools it, even even it, back then it was like if you moved like you still had to set out a year because it it, it would it, it was about super teams and yeah. it, it was about recruiting and and, and you know, the, I think, and I heard in the interim study, there's always going to be this debate. We, it's kind of an oxymoron, ox but there's this debate of, yes, academics are important, but we want to look focus on the whole child, and we will to look at their sure. extracurricular, and we will to look at all that, and it might give possibility of a scholarship to college, yada, yada, yada. But is it, what are we in it for? Are we for their academics? Because that was kind of the impetus of the transfer. Sure. And now it's, now you're bringing up, uh, are we going to have a portal?
3: Yeah. Almost. And I think that's, I mean, your experience was also the experience of a number of legislators who sat on that committee. I'm thinking specifically of a a couple of former teachers and coaches, uh, Representative Ronnie Johns and Representative Mm -hmm. Mark Van Curen, both had questions about, um, we don't want other coaches taking our... Uh, athletes and our student athletes away from our, our schools. Uh, so I think your concern mm. from however long ago it was that yeah. you were in high school is, is still a concern today yeah. from the people who are on the ground.
1: I, I did, while well, I was listening, because I was listening online, I thought it was interesting that you brought up, so this only applies to sports. It doesn't apply to Bands.
3: Yeah. and <laughs> I was, you have to
1: set out band
3: for the, the first The first speaker who actually talked at the interim study is a, a lawyer from, I believe it was Idabel. And he does pro bono work kind of fighting the OSSBA on, or no, not the OSSBA, the OSSAA, lots. Yeah, messed that one up. Lots of acronyms. Lots of acronyms. He spends time trying to get these kids eligible. And his big, one of his big points was that... We, we're trying to help these students. We want these students to achieve right. both academically and athletically and just achieve as, as human beings. And by saying, no, you have to sit this this time out for a year, uh, it's limiting them. It's it's yeah. cutting them off from, from the ability to access this education. And then we heard from David Jackson, who's the, yeah, executive, the executive director, executive director yeah. of OSSAA. And he, he was very compelling. Um, he talked about how... The people who are on the staff at OSSAA and the people who make up the member schools, Mm -hmm. it's like 400, I can't remember exactly what the number is, but it's like 482 member schools. They're the ones best positioned to decide, you know, who is, who should be eligible to play and who should be granted this waiver. Um, and the waiver process was, was the big topic Mm. of the day and kind of, i want to go through it very quickly because this is carrying on a little bit, but the waiver process essentially is if you move and OSSAA, uh, investigates and says, you're not going to get this waiver. It goes to a second staff member who investigates and they have to also say that they're not going to get this waiver. And then you can appeal to a, a kind of middle board. And then you can appeal to the full board of OSSAA, and they their decision is is eventually and final. the
1: board is made up of elected coaches and, and superintendents, and superintendents and, yeah. from
3: around the state. So these
1: are practitioners in the field. These it's are people got, yeah. who
3: see this yeah. on a daily basis yeah. and know what's going on. Yeah. And so on the one hand, I can see where the, the lawyer from Ida Bell is coming from. We want yeah. kids to be successful. And we want boards to be held accountable for the decisions that they make. But on the other hand, um, it seems like the process that they have is 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 a long process. It's not like one person decides and it's over. But it seems like the people who are making those decisions are best positioned yeah. to make those decisions. And so... They also heard from uh, parents who had concerns about this, and finally they heard from a, a couple of superintendents who were pleading with the legislature: mm. "Just leave these rules in place. Yeah. These these rules have worked for a long time." Yeah. To your point, and we think um, they're, they're, they continue to work.
1: Yeah. It, that, that ooh four day school weeks, sports transfers. That's that's interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. So then then there was a third.
3: There was a third. The third um, study was a study on sex education of minors. Mm -hmm. It was done by Representative Danny Williams and also uh, Senator David Bullard. Um, I just want to start by saying that as a teacher, we're teachers. Mm -hmm. I think um, examining whether or not sex education is, is a useful thing and what successes do we have and what maybe failures do we need to address of sex education? I think that's a very teacher thing to do. We Mm -hmm. deliver lessons on a daily basis. At the end of those lessons, whether it was a great lesson or a lesson that needed some improvement, we reflect on how to make it better for all of our students. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great thing to be doing, examining sex education and what can we do to improve it. Mm -hmm. My concern with this particular study was that at least one speaker didn't speak to sex education in Oklahoma at all. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, talked about kind of nationally divisive topics like um, pornography in in school libraries and um, had some pretty fringe theories about transgender and um, homosexual students. And so, I worry that we're we're having this study that, that that should be good, and it kind of got derailed by some things that could be harmful to our students.
1: Yeah, I was listening in on that, and I was very disheartened um, from the aspect that, that a speaker was allowed to present a theory that was such on the fringe that it is harmful, that his theory was so harmful, and I think to our students, I think to our families that are in the LGBTQ community, and that um, how how painful that had to be for them to listen to. I, I think about uh, our suicide rate for our students in that community. It is so high. Yeah. And they're s- fragile. Yeah. And it, it was just, it was saddening to hear that that was even being given oxygen and given air to uh, a group of professionals, yeah, and 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 so it, it saddened me on that respect because um, every one of our students, every one of our employees, have the right to be who they are, sure, and in who they they identify and love, and so that it, it was. That one was very hard to listen to.
3: Yeah, and I think um, we're teachers, right? And we want our students to come to school, uh, feel like they belong, uh, feel like they're in a safe academic environment so that we can invest time and um, teach them, you know? And I feel like this particular, and and I should say, this wasn't the entire study. There were some good things in this study, Mm -hmm. but I feel like wasting time. Um giving kind of a voice mm-hmm. to this kind of fringe belief yeah. uh, I agree it's dangerous and I also want to point out that I'm not entirely sure I don't think the majority of our elected leaders uh hold these yeah. beliefs i don't I don't think we have a lot of people who are lining up to listen yeah. to this sort of presentation uh but I agree i think uh, having giving this oxygen yeah. in that in that in that building yeah it was disappointing
1: it, it's very disappointing and yeah i i agree with you there and um to i look at that building over there as a place of reverence uh it's our capital and to hear it, it's disappointing at any time that that people are allowed to espouse culture war theories and that would do anything but that divides instead of bringing people together is disheartening.
3: Yeah. And there are a lot of things that we can be doing over there to address actual yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, would, I would hope in the future that's, that's what we spend yeah. more of our time Absolutely. on. Absolutely. That being said, yeah. I would like to say there were some, um, there was some great data in, yeah. in this interim study yeah. concerning how effective – Sex education has been in Oklahoma. Uh, We were talking beforehand, and we don't believe that sex education is mandated. Uh, You don't have to teach sex education.
1: We're a state where it's not mandated. You have to teach about um, HIV. Yep. About that, but it's not. And and you have to have parental consent if you do.
3: Perfect. And so it's not something that you have to, but we were all talking beforehand, and it's something that we all went through. And Mm -hmm. um, the second presenter is a woman named Jenny White, and she presented and said that in the last 25 years, teen pregnancy is down 56%. And so if I'm a teacher teaching a lesson and utilizing these strategies, and I'm seeing that kind of good data, Mm -hmm. this is is good, important curriculum that is is helping our our students and our families, right? And um, yeah, that's uh, really, that was, it was difficult to hear at the beginning, but by the end, there was some good data in there, showing that I think sex education programs in Oklahoma are having um, some effect positively. A
1: little positive. End on a positive note, Tyler. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, hey, thanks for coming in. Uh, anything, are we done with interim studies? Are they done?
3: Education wise, oh, there wow. are none on my, on my calendar oh, upcoming. So lucky you. <laughs> uh, if hopefully we have, uh, nothing breaks in a different interim study yeah. that we need to go, uh, cover, yeah. but yeah, education ones should be done. And if I'm wrong, I, I hope I get to come back and talk about the next well, one. We look
1: forward to having you back in soon. I appreciate you having me. Well, let's just take some time and catch up with Catherine. And it's just me again. Uh, it's um, October. October means time for schools are out for fall break. Uh, Oklahoma schools are all over the calendar with us. And um, I just wish the best to all of our education employees to take these weeks and take the days that you have to rest, relax, rejuvenate with your family and friends, Uh Find a great pumpkin patch to get some pumpkins and um, go out and, oh, see the fall colors. They're beautiful. But also it's a great time to uh, find a candidate. Go knock doors for them. Go go to an event for them, a campaign rally, or make phone calls for them. We've got ways that you can be involved in elections, and um, it is important. We are a little over 20-something days uh, before November the 8th, and we want to make sure that everybody remembers to get out and vote. So I would like to thank Gabrielle Jacoby with um, Oklahoma Policy Institute and Coordinator with Kids Counts for being with us, and Tyler Outlaw. And, And thank you for being a part of Fried Okra, our weekly podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review Fried Okra On Apple Podcasts, you can also contact us at brightokrapodcasts at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, keep fighting the good fight for public education.